What is death? Do we know what happens when we die? Does anyone know if we exist beyond this life? Or is death really the end? Death is a transformation of consciousness from this physical domain, which is by and large illusory, to another dimension of existence that is apparently so far beyond what we experience here in the physical realm that we can't even describe it in earthly terms. Well, my belief is, and I think it's consistent with the Catholic tradition, is that once we pass beyond the veil, everything will be revealed. Not only everything about creation, but everything about ourselves. And so in one sense, then, you could say that death is one part of that process of self-discovery. Almost all people that have had a glimpse beyond the veil of death and have had some encounter with what we as Latter-day Saints would call the spirit world or as Emmanuel Swedenborg would call heaven or my evangelical Christian friends would call heaven. But almost all of them speak of the overpowering, overwhelming, all-encompassing, all-consuming sense of love. What I realized is, wow, that's, that's God at the highest level. That's the Almighty. That's, and, and I actually began to become fearful. I thought, wow, I, I'd grown up thinking life's a test and I'm going to be judged and I'm holding my little boy who died because I wrecked the car. You know, I cut his life short because I lost control or dozed off. And suddenly there felt like there was physical arms that wrapped around and just held us. And then there was this download, this, this overwhelming communication. And I was told there's nothing to forgive. We get censured so much when we experience something that is outside of other people's reality system. But yet, to actually share that you've been out of your body, to actually share that you've been somewhere else, trying to share these things, I really admire them for their courage. The moment your heart stops beating, of course, immediately blood stops flowing to the brain. 10 to 20 seconds after that event, the EEG or electroencephalogram, which is a measure of brain electrical activity, goes absolutely flat. There is no measurable brain electrical activity. It should be impossible to have any kind of conscious memory at that point in time, and yet, literally by the thousands, people have reported near-death experiences under those circumstances. People on the boundary of death, very often declared dead and then pulled back, they describe experiences. We've been able to classify them. They have a structure to them very often. They appear to happen at a point in time when it at least appears scientifically that the brain is not functioning. And I believe that there is so much that we don't know about end of life and that those who are dying are almost, you know, have a key. That if we allow that key to open and if we're not afraid of what is there as the key is turning, there's so much we can, we can gather. What I'm saying is that 
there is something much more. There is something bigger, more powerful, more universal, more connected than what we have discovered with science to date. Discover what science, religion, and those who have died and come back have to teach us about what comes next. I don't think you can actually understand a near-death experience until you really delve into it. It's, it's something to say it, but it's also much more to understand the significance of it. And I think that, to me, is what's really important. Because not only are they talking about something that is non-comprehensible, they're talking about something that it's hard to put words to. How do you describe the, the color red if you've never seen red? I mean, that's the type of thing that these people are talking about. You can say love, but what exactly does love mean? We get censured so much when we experience something that is outside of other people's reality system. Trying to share these things, I really admire them for their courage. When people go through these near-death experiences, they are a product of that experience. And it seems to me that what the experiences talk about is this love. And love really is all there is. And so if a person is very selfish and all they think about is themselves, they can reflect on this love and say, there's this love out there. It's not part of this world, but it's my job to bring that love here on earth. It's my job to show others how to be loving or how to have tolerance. But yet, to actually share that you've been out of your body, to actually share that you've been somewhere else. I think over time, one of the most amazing things that I've noticed about the near-death experience is that it not only transforms the people who have had this experience, but it's also transformed me. And it's transformed the readers of this experience. And what we've tried to do is create a nice, safe space for these people to come and share these experiences and show that, they, uh, that there is something much greater going on with the near-death experience. It isn't just a body. It's not just about living your life. It's actually about living your life in a good way so that when you go to the other side, you'll be happy about what you did here on Earth. And I learned that it didn't just transform the end ear, it transformed me, and it transformed other people from all over the world who is reading this. So we're able to bring this love and peace to everybody, which is really a good feeling.
people struggle to know who they are. They struggle to know their value and what they're doing here. And they wonder what's going to happen next. And my experiences give me, give me a unique perspective. I was an emergency physician for 25 years. I was a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians. I worked at a level one trauma center. And so we saw the sickest and the most severely injured patients. They were flown in from our state and, and surrounding states. I walked into the ER once to start my shift and I was logging onto the computer when I felt this profound spiritual presence. I'd had enough experiences, I recognized what it was. And I knew that there was a woman around the corner in the, in the next room that a team was trying to resuscitate. And I understood it was her. And she asked me for help. There was an empty space near the gurney where there wasn't uh, somebody crowded around her and I just walked over and gently rested my hand on her leg because I learned that touch is so important in these experiences. I want to make it explicitly clear I had absolutely no responsibility for her medical care. There was another physician there. He was running the code. He was giving orders. People were doing chest compressions. She was intubated. I had nothing to do with her medical care. And as I touched her leg, she asked me if she could leave. Mind you, this is silently asking me. She's intubated. She's unconscious. And I thought, why are you asking me? But as I thought that, something came to me from some eternal place and gave me the words to speak. And I silently communicated back to her. And I said, if you think it's time to go and you feel it's the right thing to do, then I think it's probably okay. And she rose up out of her body and she stood in the air above the gurney. And she looked to be about half the age of the body she'd just come out of. And she expressed her profound gratitude. And then she left. It's been my experience when these things happen that there's this profound flow of knowledge that's just kind of floating in the ether. And, and it's not forcing itself upon you, but you can take it in and you can experience it. And you can know things that you never contemplated in, in, in an instant. Um, it's like there's this veil is drawn back and there's no more impediment in communication. I went to see a patient uh, who was involved in a minor motor vehicle accident. It's a motorcycle crash, actually. He was wide awake, he said he felt fine, he wanted to get up and leave. I examined his helmet, it had a few scratches, but nothing to suggest a serious injury. There's actually well-studied criteria about how to evaluate somebody to decide whether they need either a head scan or x-rays of their neck after such an injury. He did not meet any criteria to require any kind of imaging, and I was about to let him get up and leave. When I had this profound, feeling, maybe even a knowing, that he needed a head scan. And I talked with him about it. I said, you don't meet any criteria. I don't have a good medical reason to do this scan, but I feel strongly that it should be done. And he joked about it. He said, okay, doc, go ahead and order the unnecessary test. And I did. Uh, normally, I'd get results back uh, via the computer 30 minutes later. In this case, the radiologist called me about 15 minutes later. 
He told me that there was arterial blood s s accumulating inside the man's skull so rapidly they could see it swirling on the scan. When I went back down to see the patient, he was already be becoming sleepy or somnolent. But because I worked in a level one trauma center, I had an on-call neurosurgeon, and I called the neurosurgeon, and 15 minutes later, the patient was upstairs in the OR getting a burr hole, which sounds like a critical thing, but he was probably back on his motorcycle two weeks later. If I'd have let him go home that night without any imaging, he would have almost certainly died. And I don't know what communicated to me or how uh, that prompted me to, to order that scan. But I'd like to think that somebody or something had a sense of what was going on and communicated that to me. You see, if, if we have to understand everything before we can act, and this is, I'm keenly aware of what I'm saying here as a scientist, as a physician, as somebody that was trained in Western medicine. If I have to understand, if I had to be able to explain to that person on that motorcycle that I thought he had an epidural hematoma with absolutely no evidence to suggest that that was the case, and I relied purely on science and what I could prove, he'd be dead. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do things willy-nilly, that we don't give science its weight. What I'm saying is that there is something much more. There is something bigger, more powerful, more universal, more connected than what we have discovered with science to date. The accident was on the Monday after Easter. We had celebrated an Easter vacation. We had gone down to southern Utah to visit Tamara's family. We'd had a beautiful holiday. And uh, gosh, you know, the family was in the car. I'd buckled the kids in their car seats and we were heading up the, uh, the interstate. I had set the cruise control on 75. It was as fast as I could legally go. I was in a hurry to get home. To the best of my recollection, I'm afraid what happened is I may have just dozed off at the wheel, just for a second, you know, just, you doze off, but I swerved to the right, I overcorrected to the left, and then I lost control of the car. And the car began to roll, not off the road, but, but down the road at 75 miles an hour. It was a high-speed accident. And the first thing I heard was, uh, was Spencer, my seven-year-old, crying in the back seat, which as a father, I was relieved. It's like, oh my goodness, he's okay. I've got to get to my boy. But that's, um, that's when the brutal reality hit that nobody else was crying. And that's when I knew, and when I say I knew, it was in a very intense um, way, but I knew that, that Griffin and Tamara were gone. And I realized even in that moment that they, they had left this realm, that they were deceased, and, and they were both killed instantly in the accident. And, and I don't share that to be graphic or, or morbid. It was in that dark moment that everything changed. Suddenly there was this intense calm, just this calmness. And uh, it felt as if light came to me. You know, it felt as if light rushed and encircled around me like a, like a comforting blanket. I mean, comforting me 
in this absolute catastrophe. And it felt as if I was rising above the scene of the accident. And uh, suddenly I could breathe. Suddenly the pain was gone. I'm like, wow, what? The question, I kept saying, how am I okay? How am I okay? It was, it was a little bit confusing. But as I felt as if I was lifted out of the, the trauma of it all, and I'm, and I'm being surrounded by this intense, tangible light, suddenly Tamara is right there in the light with me. I mean, she was there, she was tangible, I could feel her. And I remember her leaning into me and, um, you know, feeling her tears. I mean, feeling them, not only physically, but emotionally. Um, it's like the senses were accentuated or, or multiplied. And it was interesting because she actually was emotional. I mean, in this experience, she was crying. She was the one. I, I was like comforting her saying, it's going to be okay. And she was saying, yeah, but you've got to go back. You've got to go back. And the urgency was, I, I've got to return. I've got to raise that little boy. Um, she didn't want him left orphaned. And I learned a lot about choice in that moment. I mean, here I was looking and communicating at the woman I loved more than life, knowing I was in a different realm, and yet it was very tangible. It was very, it was very tender, very intimate. We were literally saying goodbye, but it was in this super, almost sensual type of thing where, where the, the tears were so real, the, 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 the feel of her forehead leaning against me was so big and, and so much more than this experience. And it, it, she was sad. It, it saddened her. She didn't want to be apart. And yet there felt to be this greater plan, this greater purpose. It was almost like we agreed to this. And remember, you know, you've got to go. It was almost like a, a, like a, a soul's journey that had been outlined, but we didn't know until the door actually opened or shut, if you will. And it's like, wow, okay, now we're moving, now we're moving on. You know, over the course of those months from the initial accident and, and even returning home from the hospital, I, I had many experiences. It, it's like the door never shut. I had one foot in this room and one foot in the other. And, and that's even gone beyond the hospital stay. You know, I mean, I, I don't walk down the streets with, you know, angelic singing around me all the time. But, but, uh, but I've become very aware of those who have passed on. I, I'm grateful because I've learned things I could have learned in no other way. I'm also grateful because I know there's no death. You know, nobody really dies. We just go to a different realm. We walk through a door and, and we're connected beyond that. I'm grateful for that. And, and I'm grateful that I can kind of walk down the road and you know, things might go wrong. I can brush myself off and say, hey, you know what? <laughs> we're only here to learn and I'm learning. And that's beautiful. And, and I've felt and experienced the love that to me is the only real thing and the only powerful thing in the world. And that I'm grateful for. And I might not have known that had this not happened. So in the end, I suppose I'm grateful. Yeah. Observation in any exploration is the first step. 
the next step is nearly always structured observation. Um, you start to be more precise in your observations. You start to record them more carefully. I judge that this whole field of NDE is relatively young in that regard, at least compared to some other areas of exploration. Uh, my understanding is it's about one person in 40 across the world, across different societies, um, relates having one of these. So it's a common human phenomenon. This idea of near-death experiences, that's what makes it interesting. As soon as you see something that's that common, uh, happens that frequently, it suggests that there could be something there and you'd really like to explore it, to understand it a little bit more deeply. It reminds me of the early explorers who were studying terra incognita, parts of the earth that had not been explored that were not understood, at least to the people who were doing the exploring. Um, it's that Christopher Columbus sailing across the great ocean sea to the west, thinking he'd reach India. It's Marco Polo, an even better one, Sir Richard Burton, going native in Arabic cultures and bringing back exotic reports of almost magical experiences. Did they all follow the same route? No. Did they all see the same things? Well, with their different routes, they saw different landmarks, different features that they came back and reported. But eventually, over time, you can get enough observation to build a map, to build a description of what's out there, a, a description that others could use to plot their course, potentially. In some real sense, that's what science does, is build that map in a replicable, defensible, predictable way. Almost all good science has to do with making predictions. You observe for some period of time, you start to generate ideas about what's happening behind that, what describes it, uh, what the laws or rules or structure is behind it. Especially when you look at near-death experiences, people on the boundary of death, very often declared dead and then pulled back, they describe experiences. We've been able to classify them. They have a structure to them very often. They appear to happen at a point in time when it at least appears scientifically that the brain is not functioning. These areas suggest that the nature of consciousness may go beyond our current understanding. And in those circumstances, they demand further exploration. You know, if you look at those old maps of the world, they're kind of right. But eventually we get far better surveying techniques. You have to be able to position yourself on the surface of the world. Our techniques get better. And over time you get a more precise map. And eventually today we have satellites in orbits that take pictures. Doesn't get much better than that in terms of a map. You see, science is all about building the map. So, in a very real sense, the people who are doing NDE research today, it seems to me, are those early explorers. They're relying primarily on observation to build an initial map. They've identified particular patterns, structured observation. Those patterns have withstood at least some preliminary scrutiny in terms of potential alternative sources.
I saw one study where people used electroencephalograms, EEGs, to measure electrical activity in the brain. We can tell how the brain's working fairly well. What they showed was is, is that the brain tends to shut down within two or three minutes. But many people with NDEs, near-death experiences, are describing events that happen well past that time. When in theory, at least, there is no electrical activity in the brain. Now that's interesting. What's going on? These areas of science are all nascent. The size of the universe is universal. It's massive. We have a lot yet to understand. It's one of the most fun things about science. There's always a new horizon. There's always a new distant land to be explored. There's always a new idea to test. It makes every day an adventure. My name is Martha Jo Atkins, and I help people by being a steady presence when they're at end of life. I see people who are fearful. I see people who are anxious. And there are levels of that on a continuum, just like there are any feelings. And when it gets to the high end, it is, it is difficult for them. They're, they're uncomfortable in the bed. They're uncomfortable in their own skin. Oftentimes, family members and the, the person who's dying themselves don't quite understand what's happening to them. And they get worried. And so a lot of my work is around affirming what's happening to them, that it's normal and natural and part of this big old life that we all have and that's all going to end sometime. My oldest brother died when I was 23. It was unexpected. He died in his sleep and my family's experience of being a family completely changed. My experience of being a sister changed. I was working at the time at a children's hospital in an intensive care unit and on a neuroscience unit. It um, worked as a child life specialist and we help kids uh, cope and adjust to illness and hospitalization. And then phone call came in the middle of the night that, that Jim had died. So my personal and professional worlds really collided. My sense of safety was shattered. You know, this, this person I adored was gone and there was no no way to brace against that it just happened and I was sad in a way I'd never been sad before and I didn't have interest in doing things and I cried a lot and and I wanted to fix it I read books and I went to therapists and I started taking uh, antidepressants and they wrote these things that I thought I needed to do to fix this and we all my my mother and father and brother and I all had our own ways of managing that and uh, my way was to <laughs> my way was to start a children's grief center and create this space for kids to come to to have a place to talk about what they needed to talk about it's exactly what i needed I needed a place to talk about this my family needed a place to talk about it and what happened is i got further and further into the children's grief work that that became my world and um, you know, I'd sit on the airplane next to somebody, and what do you do? And well, I work at this children's grievance center. Well, let me tell you a story. And so I began to collect stories, and the stories were fascinating to me. I'm still collecting stories. I get 
I get stories of angel visits and I get stories of I saw my dad in the bedroom. I get stories of my mother came and told me goodbye. Just all these really beautiful, I think they're beautiful, um, examples of what can happen for some people at end of life. And uh, without fail, those stories have a measure of comfort for those people. And when a person who is at end of life looks up to the ceiling and talks about the opening and somebody's looking down at them or somebody's thrown a rope down for them, but the rope's not quite long enough, that has meaning to me now. And as I began to talk to people about what I was seeing, um, they said to me they were less fearful or, oh, this makes sense to me in a way it didn't before. And that's really gratifying. If, if there's something about that experience that makes sense to them, I do know that I can be steady and I can be still and I can sit there with them in the middle of it. Some people can't do that. And for whatever reason, I can. And it feels good to be able to do that. The work I do has caused me to treasure my friends and family more than I ever have. And to, to treasure my time and to use it in ways that makes me happy and makes other people happy. I went to Berkeley and studied linguistics, and I've always been intrigued by how language reflects who we are as people, how consciousness works, how our thoughts work. I never thought that I would be involved in this study of death and dying until my father began to die. And in those last three weeks of his life, as I sat bedside, I noticed fascinating changes in his language. And being a linguist and being trained to pick up a pencil and write down what I hear or to record the words that I hear before me, my first response was to sit down and start writing down those words at the threshold for my father. And as I heard his words and, and he revealed to me things that he was seeing around him, I was completely blown away. I felt like I had entered into a new territory, into a new world. My father's language um, became much more metaphoric. He started talking about angels, which blew me away because <laughs> my dad was a complete skeptic. He didn't believe in anything like angels. And he described green, a green dimension, a green world that he was part of. So when I heard those things, I became completely intrigued by those words that people say before they die. And that was really the beginning of a seven-year adventure into studying final words. One of the things that people commonly say after a near-death experience is that it's ineffable. There are no words for it. And we know that there are certain experiences in life that are really hard to put into words, like a beautiful sunset. You know, that's a hard thing. Or even chocolate. And if I were to start, I'd, you know, I might say something like, well, it kind of reminds me of the jungle. No, no, no. It's more like my mom's home-baked cookies. Well, kind of milky. No, it's got kind of earthy tones. Wait, wait, wait. But it's really sweet. But, well, it's not sweet if you have dark chocolate. It's hard to talk about chocolate. Or even love. How do you explain love? 
I get this tickle in my belly. <laughs> I think about, no, I don't really think about him. I kind of feel about him. No, no, no. It's like walking on air. I mean, no, it's not air, right? But a chair, well, it's made out of wood. It's got four legs, right? So forth, right? It's very easy. So one of the things we know that when people have near-death experiences, they say it's ineffable. It's really hard to put it into words. There's no words that will ever, ever, ever describe it. So it's almost in, inevitable that if something is hard to put into words, you're going to start sounding like you're talking not, about nonsense. So what seems to be happening is that as people are dying, they are experiencing things probably that they've never experienced before. And as it's going on, they're reaching for different types of language and images and themes to express and describe and make sense of this pretty overwhelming and unique and different experience that they've never been through before. So you can say, oh, this is scary. I, I, this is just too scary. It's different. I don't want anything to do with it, right? And close the door. The other option is, hmm, I'm curious. What is going on for this person? Now, yes, it's sad and the grief is for real. But, and also, there's something sacred and powerful happening potentially. And I believe that there is so much that we don't know about end of life and that those who are dying are almost, you know, have a key. That if we allow that key to open and if we're not afraid of what is there as the key is turning, there's so much we can, we can gather from those final words. So I think it's worth a good listen. <laughs> From a theological standpoint, death is an important gateway to eternal life. So while we can say in some respects, we are born on earth, we are born to die, and that we die to be born into immortality, that if we, if we didn't die, we wouldn't ever be able to be resurrected and return to live with our Heavenly Father for all eternity. And so death is going to be that gateway, that doorway into eternal life. So death is as essential as is birth. I think also if we look at it from a hopeful standpoint of that there is life after death, there, there are relationships after death, there is happiness and fulfillment and meaningful progression, then it's not fearful, it is anticipation, it is joyful anticipation, but there's still an element of, I don't know what to expect. Almost all people that have had a glimpse beyond the veil of death and have had some encounter with what we as Latter-day Saints would call the spirit world or as Emmanuel Swedenborg would call heaven or my evangelical Christian friends would call heaven. But almost all of them speak of the overpowering, overwhelming, all-encompassing, all-consuming sense of love. I love that because, as we know from the Bible, uh, John speaks of God as love. God is love. And I think in my own personal life, 
virtually every spiritual experience that I have had, where I have really felt the Holy Spirit in my life, or I have encountered the divine in some way, has been accompanied by love. And people that have had that experience or those experiences come back changed and they are remarkably changed. This wasn't a hallucination or a bad acid trip. This is, this is something that they know is real that affects them deeply. And that love, that, that lack of condemning judgment love affects how they treat others when they come back. To me, that was one of the great lessons of how understanding the next life helps us in this life, is if possessing God's love helps me to love others more, then I in this life ought to seek to know God's love in, in greater depth in my own life. Virtually all religion has some element of hoping for a better future or a better world. In fact, sometimes that's why atheists criticize religion and say that religion was only created to ease our fear of death. Now, I can see where they're coming from, but uh, to me, uh, I could turn right around and say to them, how can you live in a world like this? knowing that nothing will ever, ever be better. For me, having that hope and looking forward to a future existence after death gives me some guidance and direction and hope in this life that without it, for me personally, it would be much, much harder to deal with the challenges of life and so if religion is helping me with my fear of death, so be it. I will take my pathway of faith over the dismal, gloomy pathway that I would have of fatalism of you eat, drink, be merry, live, die, and all is lost. That I couldn't live with. And so I choose to live by faith. Several years after I first read about near-death experience in a medical journal, I was having dinner with a college friend of mine and his wife. And during the course of dinner, she said that she had allergies so severe that once she was even under general anesthesia in an operation, had an allergic reaction, and she coded. And that was all she said at that point in time, but the way she said that triggered my thinking as a doctor. There seemed to be more to the story. That was my instinct as a physician. So I popped the question, did anything happen to you when your heart stopped, when you coded on the operating room table? And she immediately said, why yes, and went on to share the first near-death experience I ever heard in person. Here she described how her consciousness went above her body. She saw the uh, frantic efforts at her own resuscitation, the racket the electrocardiogram ma machine makes when it flatlines. She then went through a tunnel, was in an unearthly, beautiful realm, had a review of her life, and, and had to make a decision about returning to her own physical body, which she finally decided she would do. 
After she relayed that story, she asked in a puzzled way, but I don't know what that experience is. She'd never heard about near-death experience. It was then I said, I think I know what happened. I read about this several years ago. I think you had a near-death experience. And from that moment on, I was struck. I knew that if this happened consistently to a large number of people, if this was a real experience, if this was, if you will, nature's way about telling us something about the big picture, this was extremely important indeed. And I was ready to begin my investigation journey to learn more about what I just heard about. What's remarkable about near-death experiences is that they shouldn't happen. Many of them are associated with a cardiac arrest, which means your heart stops beating like a heart attack. The moment your heart stops beating, of course, immediately blood stops flowing to the brain. 10 to 20 seconds after that event, the EEG or electroencephalogram, which is a measure of brain electrical activity, goes absolutely flat. There is no measurable brain electrical activity. It should be impossible to have any kind of conscious memory at that point in time, and yet, literally by the thousands, people have reported near-death experiences under those circumstances. The key to understanding near-death experience is to understand that they're common, that what happens during them are consistently observed, to understand the evidence for their reality, and to understand that they're absolutely medically inexplicable. There's no substitute for actually listening, and listening carefully to people that have had these near-death experiences, either in person or reading the accounts from a wide variety of sources. People that have near-death experiences change in ways that are called after-effects. That means what occurs after their near-death experience. It's been very consistently observed in both prospective and retrospective studies. What's been observed is that they, of course, essentially no longer fear death. From their perspective, they know what lies beyond death's doors because they've seen it. They've looked beyond the veil. They know that there's a wonderful afterlife. So they may fear the dying process, but they don't fear what lies beyond. And of course, they become more interested in life. They understand that life is meaningful, purposeful. They understand the critical importance of love. They typically become much more loving, compassionate people, both to themselves, they take better care of themselves, uh, as well as in their outreach to other people. The peace and love in near-death experiences is described as unearthly. When they have that as part of their near-death experiences outside of anything they ever knew in its intensity, uh, how it envelops them, that's what's so exciting to people that have this. They didn't even know they could feel that in their life. And so it's not surprising that when they return to their body and recover from that close brush with death, that they try to bring that piece of heaven into their life in other ways when they interact with other people. In my research of near-death experience, I've absolutely lost my fear of death. I, like the thousands of near-death experiencers that I've investigated, all have come to that same conclusion. We're literally spiritual beings having an earthly existence at this time. When we die, and we all will, then we're going to return to our real home, that spiritual home, which is so often, and I think aptly called, heaven. And that is going to be an absolutely wonderful existence for each and every one of us. As one person told me once, uh, death is a very short experience. So for us who stay here, of course, the person dies and they remain dead to us. 
But for the person who is living here, dies in that moment of death, they come and are with God and with God face to face. The traditional Jewish answer of what happens after we die is very similar to Christianity. And essentially, our deeds on earth determine whether we go to the good place or the bad place. And it's a little softer than traditional Christian beliefs. If you don't get to go to the good place and if you go to the bad place, you only spend 11 months there. It's sort of similar to Catholic purgatory. And you work off your transgressions and then you get, uh, you get the eternal reward. Again, that's the traditional view that's put forward in the canonical Jewish text, the Talmud. When I talk to contemporary Jews about this issue of what happens after we die, I think most people leave the question open. They may broadly think, well, there's something that happens afterwards, but who am I to say? And I think more and more contemporary Jews leave that to God. Uh, rather than the earlier traditional rabbinic interpretations of what happens after we die. The death and birth only happens to the body. Because there's two categories, very distinctly different. There's spirit and matter. For spirit, there is never beginning or end. We're eternal. But we do change forms based on two things our desire and our karma. So by our karma, we're pushed. And what is karma is, is a subtotal of everything we do. Good things will yield into good karma, and bad things will yield into uh, bad karma. So desire and karma, yeah, they're intertwined, and they define our future. Um, we don't have a Jewish Dante. We don't have an inferno. We don't have these very poetic descriptions of heaven, hell, purgatory, like in Christianity. So it's not really described what goes on in the Olam Haba, in the thing I'm calling the good place, the world to come. And the, the focus is really on this worldly action. Judaism really wants us to be good people in this world and to act not based on reward, but because that's what people do. That's what people should do, is be trying to become better human beings and trying to improve the world. As Catholics, we believe that as when people pass from this life to the next life, they are to see God and be with God. And when you're not ready to, to be with the family, not ready to be in the presence of God, a person spends time, although we use the word time, eternity has no time. And so there's a, a state of being that is away from God, and it's a place or a state of being where a person looks at their life and is able to um, sense that remorse, that sense of, I'm not ready to see God yet, and that's purgatory. So purgatory is not being ready to see God face to face not being ready to be in that fullness of happiness. And so we talk about um, a kind of suffering in purgatory. Um, 
because it's knowing fully that God exists and that you could have that happiness, but that you weren't prepared. So there's a, a real deep sense of grieving and loss, and that's painful. So the pain of purgatory is, I belong there in heaven, but I'm not ready. And then you are ready. And so is that in our time, a day, a week, a month, a year, we don't, we don't know. There is a huge responsibility towards self-assessment regarding our deeds in daily life in Judaism. At the daily level, there's a prayer, the Tachanun prayer, that we would say every morning, which is a chance for reflection upon misdeeds and a chance to repent for them in daily life. And for those deeds that escape our notice, there's the holy day of Yom Kippur once a year, the day of repentance, which is sort of the safety net holy day as far as sin is concerned or transgression is concerned. And but really what we're supposed to be doing is judging ourselves as a part of daily life, as a way to improve ourselves. In as much as an idea that good action in this world um, may result in a, war, in a reward inspires us to act as better people in this world, then that's productive. Um, but um, uh, the idea of a final judgment or fear around a final judgment is something that's really been de-emphasized, I'd say, in contemporary Judaism, although it's there in the traditional texts. Almost everything is in, in our power by the decision and choices we make. However, there's a, fact, a mercy factor, or the factor of grace. So there's effort and mercy. So effort to do the right thing, to um, do the thing that will be beneficial only for me, but for others. That effort, that effort will attract the mercy. And with, a, with both in place, with effort and mercy, uh, will yield a very good result. Traditional Jewish view of resurrection is that at the time of the Messiah coming, when the Messianic age comes, then there will be a full bodily resurrection of every person. So while there is this traditional Jewish belief of bodily resurrection, and in fact, the central prayer in Judaism that's said three times a day, traditionally includes a prayer for that bodily resurrection. Reform Judaism has gone so far to change the wording of that prayer so it no longer refers to resurrection. Really in contemporary Judaism, for the vast majority of Jews, resurrection is not something that they're wishing for. It's not something that they're particularly thinking about. And it's not a central part of their Jewish beliefs. This really is one of the traditional Jewish beliefs that's been largely abandoned by contemporary Jewry. At the first judgment, we're without a body, but what are we? I mean, there must be some body or some entity that is before God. At the second coming, at the end of the world, then we have a physical body, like we have a physical body in the resurrection as Jesus had. 
So Jesus's body was able to eat, talk, walk, and yet walk through walls, appear, disappear, and that. So we're not really quite sure what that resurrected body will look like. But it's what we're trying to get at is that we are not just spirits in heaven. We are the fullness of humanity, and the fullness of humanity means body, spirit, soul, everything that we are, which includes our physical body, is in heaven. The purpose of human existence is the purification of existence. For those who have purified their existence, and they receive that the ultimate form of mercy is that reawakening of that pure love of God that it's in the heart. Then we go back home, back to Godhead. No more birth, no more suffering, no more struggle, and that's the goal. This whole cycle of repeated birth and death, which is called samsara, the cycle of birth and death, it can be and it should be uh, intercepted by the mercy factor, where we get uh, uh, catapulted out. <laughs> from the cycle of birth and death, and eventually propel us towards where we all came from, the spiritual world, going back home, back to Godhead. Generally, the Jewish tradition follows the views of the biblical prophets, which teach that the perfection of this world, the messianic age, the world to come, heaven, whatever we want, metaphor we want to use for the perfection of this world, is something that all human beings will participate in. There are traditional beliefs that say that some people may have to do a little bit of work after death in order to achieve that. But in general, Judaism, particularly the prophetic tradition in the Bible, is incredibly inclusive about who gets to participate in the afterlife, in the messianic age. In terms of the judgment of any one person, it's individual. Only God can judge. As the Pope famously said, who am I to judge? Only God is able to judge the heart of every person, to judge the, the, the fullness of that person. God creates every person, and every person is a beautiful creation of God. So God, as they say, doesn't make junk. God makes beautiful people. A lot of times there are difficulties in a person's life. There are people who are suffering quite a bit and a lot, but every person, every person is created in the image and likeness of God, is a beautiful creation of God. Where do we go when we die? Well, of course, religious traditions have a variety of answers to that. What the Catholic tradition says is at the moment of death, we have or we experience what's called a particular judgment. Uh, our souls are separated from our bodies um, and we're judged on the basis of our actions, on the basis of our love and charity during life. Well, my belief is, and I think it's consistent with the Catholic tradition, is that once we pass beyond the veil, everything will be revealed. Not only everything about creation, but everything about ourselves. And so in one sense, then, you could say that 
Death is one part of that process of self-discovery, a self-discovery where we finally move to fullness and consummation of all our hopes. I think knowing or believing or hoping for um, an afterlife allows us to let go of those things that prevent us from realizing who we truly are or who we truly can be. The Catholic tradition primarily wants to emphasize individual responsibility, individual responsibility for our actions, both good and bad. That our own individual actions aren't just about us. Uh, they're not isolated. They instead uh, ripple out, shall we say, uh, not only to affect other people, to draw them to us in love, but also affect the cosmos. And so in that sense, we as human beings have far more importance when we look at the afterlife and the prospect of passing through the veil than if we say the life that we live is all that there is. The idea that death is something that uh, is an inextricable part of human life is something that's very challenging. It's a very, in some ways, painful idea. I tend to, however, think of death much more as part of our growth, our spiritual growth, um, seeing from birth through death to union with God. As I've gotten older, the image that, that really comforts me is Jesus meeting me and just hugging me and saying, I know, I understand. Um, so that's the image that stays with me uh, and consoles me in those times when uh, life seems overwhelming and the prospect of death seems even more frightful. Death is a transformation of consciousness from this physical domain, which is by and large illusory, to another dimension of existence that is apparently so far beyond what we experience here in the physical realm that we can't even describe it in earthly terms. In the earlier years of my study of this, I didn't really try to imagine so much what the afterlife is like because what people told me anyway is there are no, no words for it, right? Plus, I just didn't know what I was dealing with. I knew that it wasn't uh, oxygen deprivation to the brain, both on philosophical grounds and also on the grounds that people standing there at the bedside had near-death experiences too. But I just didn't know. And I think I first had to kind of wake up to the realization that there's an afterlife before I could then start thinking about the nature of the afterlife. I had a friend who was a fundamentalist minister in Georgia who was raised in a very strict fundamentalist church. And he was absolutely convinced that only members of his church were going to heaven and everybody else would go to hell. 
And on the way to church one morning, he had a wreck in which it's amazing that he survived. But he had this experience of seeing everything he had ever done. He said, what God was interested in was how I had learned to love. People who come back from a near-death experience will say that this being of light that they meet who sort of helps guide them through the, their life review, you can't even come up with the words to describe what this love of this being is like. That we have to use the word love because that's the closest we have on the earth to describe it, but that it's so far beyond anything that we experience as love while we're here that words fail us and we're when we're trying to describe it. People often go into these experiences thinking that it's gonna be one of judgment, that there's, uh, that God has been keeping a book with all your um, making marks against you for various kinds of um, infirmities or muffs in life. And so they go into this with the attitude that they're going to be judged. But what they come out seeing pretty quickly in this life review is not a matter of judgment. It's a matter of how have you learned? What did you learn from this? And how have you learned to love? And people say that in this situation, you, you can see that the answer is obvious because you're surrounded by a panorama of every single thing you've ever done. And this being sees it completely. And yet whatever is in that panorama, this being loves you completely. After this, people are inspired to, um, to try to be good and loving to others. Still within the framework of human failings, that it's still difficult, but at least it, that vision of the importance of love inspires them to get busy to try to bring it into everyday reality.